talking about Israel and Palestine. Even the words trigger anxiety, don't they? Israel, Palestine, right to exist, right of return, security fence, occupied territories. Already we are on high alert, poised to fight or flee. If I turn on NPR and people are yelling at each other, I already know what they're talking about. The Middle East. So let's all take a deep breath. And another. We will all survive the next 20 minutes. If I do my job, some of us will actually feel better than we do right now. So let's see what happens. I should have preached this sermon over two years ago, after our June 2009 semi-annual meeting, where rancorous debate over the proposed task force on justice in the Middle East left some enraged and others in tears. I hoped that personal conversation, pastoral care, and community dialogue would heal or at least solve those wounds, and maybe they have, but not enough. Not enough. For my failure of discernment, my failure of ministry, I am deeply sorry. For 20 years, the Public Conversations Project has worked with communities riven by controversy over abortion, gay rights, and Israel-Palestine. When divisiveness occurs in a community, they observe, whether it shows up in heated arguments, cold silence, scrupulous avoidance, or all of the above, many people experience a sense of loss. It may be a loss of authenticity, as false camaraderie covers over feelings of distrust and estrangement. It may be a loss of energy and commitment, resulting in withdrawal or apathy. It may be a vague feeling of not belonging or a feeling of abandonment. It may be the loss of joy that is associated with a safe and loving community as people in the community become increasingly critical of each other's viewpoints and more susceptible to stereotyping or being stereotyped. In a congregation like ours, I think our deepest yearning is not to be right. It is not even to be loved. In a congregation like ours, I think our deepest yearning is to be known. The pain of this debate in our congregation is only partly anger at someone else's position. It's also grief. Grief at being misunderstood and misjudged. And even though this debate has directly involved only small numbers of us, all of us are affected because we belong to each other. The pain of one is the pain of all. 
They teach us in seminary that all theology is autobiography. It's the same with our politics. Our worldview arises inevitably from our personal history. So before speaking in the third person, and especially before speaking in the second person, we must speak in the first person. What happened to me and the people I care about? I was born in 1952, just seven years after the liberation of the Nazi death camps by Allied troops. When I was in seventh grade, my school showed us a documentary about the Holocaust. I will never forget the searing images of emaciated corpses stacked in mass graves. My wife, Julie, is the daughter of a Holocaust survivor whose family fled Germany the morning of Kristallnacht. As a teenager in the late 1960s, I attended Indian Hill, a summer arts camp in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, founded by Mordecai and Irma Bauman of New York City. For the first time in my life, I found myself a minority, a goy among Jews. Nearly everyone there was pretty left-wing, so when I circulated a petition to stop the bombing of North Vietnam, I was surprised how many declined to sign. Finally, someone explained that when your family has been decimated by the Holocaust, you might not want your name on a list that could end up in the government's hands. In 1969, the summer of the Apollo moon landing, I was a 16-year-old student teacher in an enrichment program for Hartford children, most of them African-American. In chorus, we taught them the stirring theme song from the 1960 Paul Newman epic, Exodus, about the founding of Israel. This land is mine, we sang. God gave this land to me. When I was in my 30s, I attended workshops for Jews and allies led by Sherry Brown, now director of the National Coalition Building Institute. Sherry explained how after centuries of persecution and pogroms and the Holocaust, many Jews feel a deep and chronic fear of abandonment and betrayal. And so I wrote songs like Denmark 1943 and Not in Our Town. When the sirens are wailing and shouts fill the night, I sang, never will you stand alone. Never will you stand alone. So when Jews have told me they don't feel safe here, in my own congregation, it makes me inexpressibly sad. I've also heard advocates of the Palestinian cause say they feel censored, even silenced here. This too grieves me beyond words. Over the years, I've learned of the tragic and sometimes brutal mistreatment of the Palestinians. I've learned that the 1948 events mythologized in the Exodus movie are called in Arabic, al-Nakba, the catastrophe. In the establishment of the Jewish state, 
Arabs were forcibly expelled from land they had owned and farmed for generations. I've learned that in 1948, the United Nations affirmed the right of return of Palestinian refugees, and in 1967, called for withdrawal of Israeli forces from territories occupied in the Six-Day War in exchange for Arab recognition of Israel. But Israeli settlements in these territories continue to expand. I've learned that Palestinians suffer daily humiliation and frequent abuse by Israeli security forces. During the 18 years following the Six-Day War, an estimated 40% of the adult male Palestinian population was jailed by the Israelis. I've learned that the United States government sends Israel over $3 billion in military aid grants each year, which is almost half of all such military assistance that Washington gives out, and nearly one-fifth of the Israeli defense budget. I've learned that powerful lobbying groups like the American Israel Public Affairs Committee keep that aid flowing while making nearly impossible a free and full debate among our elected representatives over United States relations with Israel. I've learned enough, in short, to have compassion for both Israelis and Palestinians. So I appreciate the effort, however imperfect, of Rabbi Michael Lerner to respect both viewpoints simultaneously. From 1880 to 1950, Lerner writes in Healing Israel-Palestine, the Jewish people jumped from the burning buildings of Europe. We jumped not because we wished to, but because of a legacy of hate that culminated in our being the victims of genocide. And we landed on the backs of Palestinians. The Palestinians and the Arab people of the Middle East Lerner writes, were in the midst of a struggle to free themselves from colonial powers and were afraid of the Zionist dream of the creation of a Jewish state right on top of their own fledgling Palestinian society. They viewed the Jews who came to Palestine not as desperate refugees, but as Europeans introducing European cultural assumptions, economic and political arrangements, and thereby extending the dynamics of European domination. Both sides have legitimate claims, Lerner writes. Both sides have legitimate grievances against the other. And both sides have made terrible errors. I have not discovered a bad guy and a good guy in this situation, Lerner concludes, any more than I have found a good and bad guy in my therapy office. Reality is much more complex. Both Jews and Palestinians have endured suffering beyond my privileged capacity to imagine, let alone understand. Both have endured generations of exile, diaspora, discrimination, and abuse. Both have been victims, and both have been perpetrators. There is no hierarchy of oppression. 
African-American, lesbian, feminist, socialist, Audre Lorde taught us. There is only pain. And the patience to heal it. Violence. And the commitment to end it. One may wish for the Israeli government to tear down the West Bank barrier that enrages and denies a livelihood to so many Palestinians. One may wish for the Palestinians to unite in nonviolence as the only morally acceptable path to peace and justice. One may wish for repentance on both sides for the brutal dehumanizing violence each side has inflicted on the other. One may wish for any number of developments in Israel and Palestine. But the truth is, we have only a very small influence over those things. However deeply we care, Unitarian Universalists in Cambridge, Massachusetts do not control the fate of the Middle East. But we do control our own. We can repent of our own violence, not physical, but spiritual and emotional, of our own brutality, in the contempt in which we have held those with whom we disagree, of our own dehumanizing of people not half a world away, but only a few pews away. We can rededicate ourselves to a spirit of humility, generosity, and authentic curiosity. We can invite a dialogue in which our goal is not to win an argument, but to understand another's perspective. Not to change another's mind, but to open our own hearts. In this congregation, we have a covenantal relationship with one another. This church is not the public square, let alone the blogosphere. And by the way, what I say on the internet, I can't disclaim here in the congregation as if I were two different people. As members of this congregation, we make a solemn vow in the spirit of right relations to listen compassionately, speak respectfully, and to take responsibility for our actions and feelings to deal directly with others, to resolve conflict, to strive to stay in relationship through conflict, and to assume the good intentions of others. If we simply want to fight for the rights of Palestinians, if we simply want to defend the state of Israel, there are many organizations we can join to do that. In this covenantal community, in this holy place. Relationship is more important than being right. Reverence for one another, for each person's inherent worth and dignity, is more important than winning. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. understood, how we work for justice is as essential as justice itself. It is inseparable from justice itself. 
We will never make peace by making enemies. We will make peace by learning to forgive in the heart what the mind insists with every justification is unforgivable. Every group, every congregant, every staff member at First Parish has the same responsibility to engage with and minister to those who dis disagree with us with compassion and generosity. We must learn to distinguish our past wounds from what is happening in the present moment. Otherwise, we are trapped in the past, unable to recognize the opportunity for peace and transformation even when it pounds on our door. Because it's not about us. It's not even about our cause. It's about love. Wouldn't it be amazing if advocates of Israel and Palestine in this congregation could make a commitment to identify points of common purpose on which to work together, maybe to provide humanitarian aid, to support alternatives to violence, or to oppose human rights abuses on both sides. Now, that would be incredibly challenging so much harder than proclaiming one's position and amassing evidence as proof of its righteousness. Who, who could ever muster the fortitude, the patience, the self-discipline, the inner calm to engage in such exasperating, exhausting, infuriating conversation with so little hope of success? and yet without precisely such fortitude, patience, self-discipline, and inner calm, with even less hope of success, how will the people of Israel and Palestine ever find their way to lasting peace? As my colleague, the Reverend Jason Lydon, put it in his sermon, Be Not Afraid, Truth-Telling and Justice-Seeking, we must sit with our own histories, the histories of the land and the histories of resistance. We must learn about suffering and oppression. We must share openly and be gentle with each other. We must recognize that we are going to be uncomfortable. If we can't talk to each other here at First Parish in Cambridge, what hope is there for the Middle East? There is a force in the universe, Rabbi Lerner declares, that makes possible the transformation from that which is to that which can and should be. That power is in each of us. And if we can overcome our egos enough to find ways to work together effectively, 
if we can withstand the anger that gets directed at us when we believe in the possibility of a world based on love and justice and peace, then we will be able to make a real contribution right now in this time and place to the process by which the world will be healed. In the Jewish mystical tradition, all of physical creation is broken pieces, broken pieces of the primordial world, each fragment containing a spark of divine light. The job of humanity, of each human being, is to perform acts of compassion and responsibility, of interpersonal kindness and caring, each act liberating a divine spark. My friends, shards of brokenness lie all around us. Come, let us gather the light and piece by piece rebuild the world. Amen. And blessed be.